This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits, and we're joined today on the podcast by Michelle Delahousse, who is the Executive Director for the Fifth Avenue Committee and a member of the City Planning Commission. Michelle, welcome. Uh, we're actually seated in, where this is a road show for the Max and Murphy podcast. We're seated in your Fifth Avenue Committee offices. In Gowanus. In Gowanus. Uh, why don't you tell us a little about the organization and, and how long you've, uh, you've been associated with it? Sure. So Fifth Avenue Committee is a 40-year-old nonprofit comprehensive community development corporation whose mission is to advance economic and social justice. Um, and we do that through a whole range of programs that uh, directly touch the lives of about 5,500 low- and moderate-income people a year. Um, and I've been the executive director for a little over 14 years. So we want to talk about a lot to do with planning and housing policy in the city. And one place to start is later today there will be the city council hearing where they review the housing vacancy study that comes out every three years and is the uh, legal justification for rent stabilization in the city. Um, those numbers are starting to come out and they show that there's been a tremendous number of apartments created over the past three years, but the vacancy rates still are very, Stubborn. very low. Yeah. So what do you think those numbers say, or your, your overall impression of sort of where we are, you know, three or four years into the mayor's housing plan in terms of the contours and landscape of affordable housing in the city? So the vacancy rate is still hovering a little around 3.5%. And, you know, for folks who may not be familiar with what the housing vacancy rate tells us, so um, basically we've had rent stabilization um, for more than 70 years because the vacancy rate in New York City and other towns around the state that are certain size population is less than 5%. Um, and, you know, the whole notion of rent stabilization is that it provides tenants rules and uh, rights, I should say, and, and has rules that govern how much rent can increase because there's such limited vacancy. Um, basically, in the negotiation between a tenant and a landlord, when you have really low vacancy, the landlord has all the leverage and rent stabilization tries to write that balance. So, you know, despite the fact that the city of New York has had the most aggressive municipal affordable housing plan than any municipality in the country for well over 20 years, our vacancy rate um, is still less than 5%. um, And is like, I I think my recollection is 3.63 this year. Um, We like to be exact. Um, But at the same time, I think there's two other numbers in there, um, which I'm going to not recall exactly, but I I think are important. One is that the city produced more units in the last few years than it's had um, in decades. Um, And I think that certainly is an endorsement of uh, Mayor de Blasio's affordable housing plan. And that what's interesting is that rents, especially at upper incomes, um, or, or upper uh, rental limits is actually coming down. Um, so it does, um, I think, reinforce the notion that, uh, you know, there is a supply problem overall. Um, the, the problem, of course, is that the, the rents really aren't coming down for the, you know, the population of folks that are most in need and for the people that Fifth Avenue Committee serves and other nonprofit community development corporations serve. I think the other really interesting number in the housing vacancy survey um, are the number of apartments that are vacant um, but not for rent. So pitotiers. Um, there's over 70,000 apartments in the city of New York that are vacant or not, you know, not really available 
um, because you know someone is basically using them as investment properties. Um, and that, that number is more than the homeless population that we have in the city of New York. Um, we, don't, we don't tax those units differently, for instance. Um, so to, you know, to have an affordable housing crisis, to have a homeless crisis, to have a crisis at the public housing authority, and to have the most, uh, you know, the highest number of pitateurs in the city's history um, not looked at, in my mind, um, as, as something that should be taxed or should be regulated um, more directly. Um, they're not contributing to relieving the city's housing crisis, basically. They're, 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 they're sitting there as investment property. And, and there's discussion, there's been discussion about instituting such a tax. Does that need state approval? Does that have to go through the state? I believe it would need state approval, mm-hmm. yes. So, I mean, so any, any tax pretty what, much needs state right, approval. Right, right. <laughs> so what the, what, what the discussion happening in the city doesn't necessarily mean that even if there's like-mindedness that there can be, can be action on that. That's so, true. You'd, you'd hope, though, that Governor Cuomo's um, peaked interest in public housing might lead him to think creatively about the... Um, the authority he has um, to try to benefit low and moderate income people in New York City. So the way you see this housing crisis, you talked just a little bit about um, rents are starting to come down at some of the upper levels, but they're not <coughs> coming down um, in the moderate and low uh, in, you know, income areas that people can afford. Um, how do you view sort of the, the general landscape of housing development in the city right now. What is happening and what needs to happen in your point of view? I mean, I think we, we need to continue to build housing and um, obviously it would be my preference that an even higher percentage of that housing be income targeted to low and moderate income people. Um, you know, obviously with the city's new uh, mandatory inclusionary housing program, uh, you know, approximately 25% of all new uh, market rate development in areas that are being rezoned um, will be permanently affordable housing. And the income targeting of those units, especially for option one uh, of the mandatory inclusionary housing, where the average rents have to be at or below 60% of area median income, with 10% of those at 40 uh, percent of area median income that that really gets in most neighborhoods close to where the need is greatest, um, and so you know to me it's more of that. Twenty five percent is simply not enough. Um, we know it's the most aggressive, uh, of, you know, mandatory inclusionary housing program in the country, but um, the need is much much greater than that. One of the things that's come up in a couple of the rezoning proposals, and I'm curious what you think about it, is uh, this happened in East New York, and it's been said again in Jerome Avenue too. Is a reassurance from the city that, look, for the for the near to medium term, because of the softness in these local markets, everything that gets built is going to be subsidized. Everything is going to be 100 percent affordable. So being concerned about you know whether or not MIH goes far enough, or whether or not the right option is selected, is almost a moot point. Um, what do you think about that assumption? Well, I mean, I think especially as it relates to East New York and Jerome Avenue, it's true that the market in those communities is basically primarily at the low and moderate income level. That is where the market is at. And so new development in that area will um, require subsidy uh, and, and is likely to be 
affordable. The question, though, is, you know, I think you got to ask, what was there before? Because in a number of these communities, they were naturally occurring affordable communities that had no, um, you know, no subsidy from government to create the affordability. Um, and oftentimes the income levels of the folks were lower than the new housing that's being created. Um, and especially in East New York, you know, that, that's a community that's moderate income that has, that has a lot of homeowners. Um, and I think the challenge in East New York in particular is that the city, there aren't a lot of great tools um, specifically to preserve affordable homeownership. Um, in in for you know for homeowners that where the, the homeownership rate wasn't created you know that homeownership wasn't created as a result of a subsidy program, um, and so you know I, I think I think there was a cart before the horse kind of a thing especially in East New York um, as it relates to the potential displacement for moderate income homeowners many of whom were also renting a part of their homes to help make their mortgage and that was pretty affordable too. So I, you got to look at the displacement in addition to whatever is being newly created and, you know, line it up. Like, you know, what, what's being lost at what AMI level and what's being gained at what AMI level? Um, and that's one way to look at it. And especially in communities where there's a really significant immigrant population, in particular undocumented immigrant population, um, we're talking about potential displacement of folks who are not eligible for the new affordable housing programs. Um, and in Jerome Avenue, you have a community with significant rent-stabilized housing. Um, and, you know, right now under the city's environmental review methodology, rent-stabilized housing is viewed um, to not be at risk of demolition. And, you know, certainly Fifth Avenue Committee and I personally have seen that that's just not the case. I mean, along Fourth Avenue here in Park Slope, as a result of the North Park Slope rezoning in 2003, we've seen a net loss of rent-stabilized housing. As a matter of fact, Community Board 6 in Brooklyn has had the most significant loss of rent-stabilized housing of any community in Brooklyn. Um, so you, you got to look at that, right? It's, um, you know, zoning, zoning can be too broad. I mean, you need a scalpel, right? You need, you need a scalpel. And so you really, you really need multiple strategies. And the, and the city, you know, now with tenant right to counsel, with a certificate of no harassment, with MIH, like the, these are all of the things you got to put all of these things together in order, and, and many more things, in order to have the desired outcome of really increasing economic uh, diversity and uh, preserving um, not just buildings, <laughs> but neighborhoods. Um, and, and the people that have lived in them and, quite honestly, withstood um, and, and really helped define what a community is. So Jared just brought up some of these neighborhood rezonings, a couple of the biggest ones. East New York, that was the first one. We're seeing Jerome Ave just go through. Um, in between was East Harlem. Yep. And, and there's been a couple of others, but those, those are the big ones. Um, for those who might not be familiar, you not only run the nonprofit that we're, we're sitting in that you, you spoke about, but you sit on the City Planning Commission, as Jared right. mentioned, introducing you. And so can you just explain a little bit about what that means and what you do there? And um, I guess that could segue into the fact that you voted against mm -hmm. um, many of these measures and rezonings and maybe explain a little bit about sure. why. Sure. So the City Planning Commission um, is a 13-member commission with uh, five, uh, with members, uh, seven members appointed um, by the mayor, five by you know each of the individual 
uh, borough presidents and then one uh, appointment um, by the public advocate. Um, and, you know, for folks that are familiar with the city's uh, land use review process, um, you know that the City Planning Commission is basically the third stop <laughs> in the process. And so we review all private applications by uh, developers and also applications and proposals by the city uh, to change land use. Hundreds a year, right? A few, hundreds a and hundreds. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything from, you know, swimming pools in Staten Island to, you know, Hudson Yards and, and right. the like, you know, it's a full, it's the full range. It's the full range. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a privilege to sit on the City Planning Commission, and I was first appointed in, in 2012 um, uh, by then public advocate, uh, you know, Bill de Blasio, and then reappointed in 2016 by current public advocate Tish James. Um, and, you know, you're, you're, I think one of the most um, critical things about the City Planning Commission is that it's really a diverse body of individuals who have expertise in their individual areas. Um, and, you know, it's, it's trying to balance the city's overall needs with whatever either the individual private developers' desires are through their private application or the city's desires as, as represented by the application in front of you. And that application could be a neighborhood-wide rezoning. Um, it could also be an individual, uh, you know, let's say affordable housing project. Um, where the city, um, you know, may be disposing of something either to a for-profit or to a non-profit affordable housing developer, as as examples. Um, and so you're you're really trying to balance, and, and in my mind, ensure that, it, as it relates to the public applications, that the city is living up to its stated goals and values. I mean, you know, the mayor often talks about New York City being the fairest big city in the country. And for me, as someone who runs an organization and whose entire career has been dedicated to advancing economic and social justice, you know, I, I, I tend to want to ensure that, um, that advancing equity um, and fairness is a key aspect of whether it's the individual proposal uh, or a broader um, neighborhood proposal. On the private applications, um, you know, some of them are quite technical and relatively minor, honestly, um, and others um, really kind of call into question what are broader public policy um, questions around planning. But it really does run the gamut. Right. There's a big difference between one sort of small site, yeah. um, <laughs> plot of land, and then right. the neighborhood rezoning. So, yeah. How does the relationship between um, you and, and decisions you make on the Planning Commission and the elected official who appointed you, how does that work? Do you consult? Do they tell you how to vote? No. Uh, how does yeah. that operate? We, we are independent. Um, so the city planning commissioners, the individual commissioners, we have five-year terms, and that was... Um, that was intentional um, so that we don't, and our terms don't coincide with the terms of the individuals who appointed us. Um, and, you know, I, I can certainly state that, um, and one of the things that I think, one of the reasons why I think I was appointed by both Mayor de Blasio and reappointed by public advocate Tish James is not only because of my knowledge and expertise, but also, quite honestly, my independence. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, I, I can state... Which the mayor might not be so uh, enamored with these days, yeah, as yeah. I indicated. At the time he appointed yeah, me, I think exactly. he was enamored with it. Yeah. <laughs> so why do you think you've been, uh, you know, you haven't always been the only person uh, dissenting, but you have regularly been among the few people that kind of raise questions about some of these proposals? Why do you think that is? 
I mean, I, I think because I run a neighborhood-based uh, nonprofit community development corporation, and quite honestly, one that has seen, um, you know, all the mistakes of past rezoning. So the area in which Fifth Avenue Committee, uh, one of our primary catchment areas is, you know, Park Slope and, and Sunset Park um, and Gowanus, uh, you know, other communities too, but... North Park Slope was rezoned in 2003. South Park Slope was rezoned in 2007. Sunset Park was rezoned in 2009. Gowanus, when uh, Bloomberg was mayor, was about to be rezoned. Um, and then the US EPA named the canal as a Superfund site. So, and so I, I personally, and this, <clears throat> and this organization as an organization, has literally seen the failings of prior public policy. Um, to take into consideration the impact that it was that particular rezonings were supposed to have. So in 2003, the North Park Slope rezoning did not have voluntary or mandatory inclusionary housing, despite the fact that we advocated for it vigorously, and we've we've lost rent stabilized housing as a result, and people have been displaced. In South Park Slope, so basically, you know, buildings were allowed to go from five stories to 12 stories as of right, um, and there were no protections for tenants whatsoever. Um, and, you know, similar, similar things have happened in South Park Slope, though we did have voluntary inclusionary housing, um, although that is just now getting traction. Um, so, and then, Meaning you Meaning know, you get a, bo you get a height bonus if you do include <coughs> affordable. Exactly. Yeah. So you get a 33% density bonus to include 20% affordable housing. And that's, so that passed in 2007, and we're just now getting projects. Um, with with inclusionary units, um, and yet we've seen displacement. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I've seen I've seen the effects of poor planning. Let's just put it that way. But but those are very different than the rezonings that have come before you. I don't necessarily see them as all that different. Can you, will you explain? Um, I, you ta I mean, take an example if 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 you prefer uh, East Harlem, East New York. Well, I mean, I, I think in general, the whole notion is, like, I, I think um, planners should take a, the Hippocratic Oath, like, first do no harm, right? <laughs> you know, that's the first thing. Um, especially, especially for populations that have been traditionally marginalized or disenfranchised. Um, you know, like, the, basically, the city's um, policies and our laws and our, our land use planning, they should... They should harmonize, right? So one part of an agency shouldn't be doing something that undermines one of the most important assets that we have in this city, rent-stabilized housing, right? Um, and one part of the agency should, you know, one part of the city should be doing all it, all, it, all it can to think about how to preserve yet another incredible public asset, public housing. So we haven't, for instance, none of the land use actions have thought about using value capture. Um, to help preserve public housing. Um, it's like, like Nietzsche's like talked about in a totally separate universe, despite the fact that it is, in, it is all in these communities. So, you know, East Harlem has significant number of units of, of public housing. Gowanus has significant public housing. And yet, um, trying to take some of the value that is created as a result of the rezoning specifically to preserve public housing has been off the table. That makes no sense to me. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Um, and that's just, you know, one example that, that is, you know, lessons from uh, what's been going on here. Like, it, it, you know, again, the mayor talked about the tale of two cities, and he knows this community well because he represented it uh, when he was in the council. 
Um, and so he knows that there are folks who you know, live in two plus million dollar brownstones immediately adjacent to folks who have mold and who have elevators that don't work and who have heat and hot water problems. He knows this, right? We, we should, if we want to have an equitable city, then we need to think about how to leverage um, what we have to preserve what we all believe is a key public asset. So whether that's rent-stabilized housing, whether that's public housing, I think that's critically important. So you mentioned um, in one of your earlier answers concerns about displacement. And one of the topics that's come up in some of the rezoning is, is just the information on which we have to base decisions about the displacement potential of these yeah. rezonings. And a lot of questions about the environmental review process. Yeah. Um, the rules that govern it, uh, the tools that, that are used, the mitigation that it is, occurs when a risk is identified. Um, is that a major obstacle, do you think, to, uh, to good planning, or do people like you sort of understand the flaws and therefore we navigate around it? And is there a better way to do that, to, to crystal ball the future? I mean, I, I think if you don't measure it, how can you possibly know what the impact is, right? So I think, for instance, the fact that um, that the City Environmental Quality Review Act and its methodology has categorically excluded any displacement analysis um, and risk to rent-stabilized housing is significant. So we have no data. It's like the CDC not being able to study gun violence. Mm -hmm. Ex exactly, exactly. There's no data. Um, or no data that's being shared. So um, and in, so that's that's really critical. The fact that uh, you know the city and the that the states uh, information around rent stabilization is not you know publicly accessible um, is critical as well. So um, I, I know that the city's very interested in this information. I, I know that you know there's a whole host of people within city government who care deeply about displacement. Um, and I think that the, the new Certificate of No Harassment uh, pilot legislation is absolutely a step in the right direction. Um, but I, I, I do believe it hampers all of us if we don't have disclosure about the potential risks so that we can, we can mitigate them. Is the, I'm, I'm a little bit, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I think uh, uh, slightly sort of confused sometimes when um, folks oppose some of these rezonings and I, I want to, I understand the risks about displacement and, mm -hmm. and sped up gentrification and encouraging mm -hmm. development and, mm -hmm. and as you said earlier, um, you know, undocumented immigrants and people perhaps living in apartments that aren't registered and there's all mm -hmm. sorts of, of concerns. Or people absolutely. who have preferential rents, mm -hmm. right? Um, you would or would not have the city um, sort of upzone some of these communities just with a very different set of criteria? Or what would you like to see that development look like to alleviate the housing crisis? I think, well, two things. One is, um, you know, I think the promise of mandatory inclusionary housing really comes in communities that can actually support the cross-subsidy, right? So you want to you, you want to encourage development in neighborhoods where the market rate housing can cross subsidize the affordable housing. Um, so quite honestly, so that you can then use those subsidy dollars in other communities to reach deeper affordability. Because there's really two things going on, right? So, you know, when you have t nearly 27 percent of the New York City population um, not benefiting whose incomes are so low that they're not benefiting from any of the new development that's happening in a community, right? 
So that's part of the problem is mandatory inclusionary housing doesn't reach below 40% of area median income. And yet in a number of the communities that have been rezoned or are targeted for rezoning, that's the majority of the residents in that community. Right? And so no wonder people are opposing it. There's nothing, none of the new housing is going to be for them. Like, you know, people want to be able to see themselves in what is happening. Um, and so I think, quite honestly, focusing on communities where there is cross-subsidy potential is an important piece. Um, and that then uh, frees up some of those subsidy dollars that, that Jared mentioned earlier that are needing to be put into the lower and moderate income communities to then go into making housing even more deeply affordable to people who need it most. And let in East New York, East Harlem be basically the city working with mostly non-for-profit developers. Well, that be my preference. Yeah, yes. but that's sort, of the, <laughs> <laughs> that's sort of the general frame of... It can be more targeted. Mm -hmm. It can be more targeted. Talk about non-profit developers and their role in the de Blasio housing plan. This has been a point of some... Uh, contention and some controversy, the extent to which they were or not being involved. Um, has that evolved over the past year or so, and, and are, is it in a good place now, or where, do you, where should it be? I mean, I, I, I think uh, the jury's still out uh, on that. Um, certainly the mayor's uh, updated housing plan, the 2.0 um, Housing New York plan, specifically um, talked about in neighborhood based anti-displacement and in particular investing in neighborhood pillars, which, you know, they've defined as nonprofits. Um, we're still, I think we're still waiting, you know, neighborhood pillars is still evolving, um, you know, so the jury's still out. I think, again, I think the intention is there, um, but, but I think we can all act more quickly in order to ensure that nonprofits are a, a more critical piece of the city's affordable housing plan. I mean, you know, after all, we take, we take whatever, um, you know, as a developer, as a nonprofit developer, we take the fees that we earn and re, we reinvest it into the communities um, and we reinvest it into our mission, which is to serve low and moderate income people. And quite honestly, we keep our housing affordable in perpetuity regardless of whether or not MIH applies. <laughs> and there's a uh, part of the update to the mayor's housing plan, I, I'm not sure if you're involved in this or will be involved in this, is a new fund to help um, purchase buildings. Yeah, yeah, well, that, that's part of the neighborhood pillars piece. Yeah, we're waiting to see the details on that. Mm -hmm. So we're in our last few minutes here with uh, Michelle De La Uz, uh, the uh, executive director of Fifth Avenue Committee and a commissioner on the City Planning Commission. Um, I wanted to ask you about Gowanus um, because, as you mentioned, it was sort of slated for uh, a rezoning. Pause mm -hmm. was hit on that, but now it's it's moving towards that. Mm -hmm. City Councilmember Brad Lander, who replaced Bill de Blasio on the City Council, has... And who I replaced here at Fifth Avenue Committee. And you, right, <laughs> yes, it's all. Uh, step, stepping, uh, stepping stones and... and uh, so, so that process is moving forward. What's your involvement been in that? How do you see it right now? Where do you want it to head? You know, give us sure. your... Because that is one of the next yeah, absolutely. ones coming up. Absolutely. Um, so Fifth Avenue Committee um, is facilitating the Gowanus Neighborhood Coalition for Justice, um, which is a broad-based coalition uh, here in Gowanus of public housing residents and industrial uh, business advocates, uh, nonprofits, uh, religious groups, 
um, civic members uh, really focused on advancing racial, uh, economic, and environmental justice as part of uh, the Gowanus rezoning. And I, you know, really, there's there's actually multiple rezonings in Gowanus. There's four publicly sponsored rezonings. So there's one which is currently winding its way through ULERP now for the siting of combined sewer overflow tanks um, in Gowanus, um, which is part of what the EPA ordered as part of the Gowanus Canal cleanup, an 8 million gallon tank and a 4 million gallon tank um, to, uh, you know, to literally to retain, but not treat, um, uh, combined sewer overflow. So that's the first of four public actions. Um, then there's the Wyckoff Gardens 5050 infill project uh, that is sponsored by uh, New York City Housing Authority. Um, there's the Gowanus Green uh, rezoning, um, and, and I should say, uh, and UDAP, um, that Fifth Avenue Committee was selected about 10 years ago with three uh, for-profit uh, developers, Hudson Companies, Jonathan Rose Companies, and the Bluestone Organization to redevelop the 5.8-acre uh, site called Public Place along the Gowanus Canal. Um, and then the, the uh, fourth public action is the one that everyone thinks of as the rezoning, which is the Gowanus area-wide rezoning. So those are the four public actions. But we anticipate one, if not dozens, of private land use actions by all of the owners uh, private owners around the canal. Um, and so the framework that the Department of City Planning, um, you know, is, is anticipated to release in the next few weeks, um, you know, we believe, I, I, don't, I don't know, I have no inside knowledge. I mean, I have to actually recuse myself from all things um, Gowanus area-wide or anything that Fifth Avenue Committee is individually involved in. Um, that framework is likely to speak to all of these things. Interesting. But I mean, one of the, I mean, I, but as it relates to, I'm sorry, the GNCJ, the Gowanus Neighborhood Coalition for Justice, um, besides, you know, having deep affordability for any new housing that's built and an exceeding um, MIH option one affordability, the other primary things that the coalition is advocating for are, you know, quite honest, honestly, investment in NYCHA and in particular value capture um, as part of the rezonings with an S. Um, the, the other is to create New York City's first eco-district. So we're the first um, you know, super fun site in, in New York City. We have three manufactured gas plant sites. I mean, basically, the, the neighborhood has been living with the, the impacts and the burdens of envir environmental burdens for decades. And so why, can't, why shouldn't we and why can't we lead on resilience, sustainability, and equity? Um, and that's, that's the vision. Um, and then finally, you know, we have a really significant an important industrial business zone in this area that um, right now is outside of what the city is focused on as part of the rezoning that, that really needs um, much more attention um, and really should be uh, leveraged as um, part and, and thought of as part of advancing the mayor's 100,000 jobs plan. So just real quick, you are helping lead that planning and advocacy, and when it comes to the city planning commission, you'll have to... Um, not be involved. Yeah. That's right. One thing that's interesting about the Gowanus um, episode is that in some of the other neighborhoods, Jerome, East, East New York, 
you know, the planning, uh, the idea of a rezoning was kind of imposed from above. Mm -hmm. But here, Councilman Lander did run the bridging Gowanus process mm -hmm. and attempt to do many of the things that critics say mm -hmm. that Euler normally doesn't do, you know, mm -hmm. engage people consensus, from the outset, right, right. develop <laughs> consensus. Um, but I get the idea that some of the efforts you've been involved in regarding the area-wide have been trying to get voices that maybe were not as loud in that process to be, to be better heard. Um, so talk about sort of the process angle of it and what was right about bridging Gowanus and how far did that get us mm -hmm. toward the idea we're looking for and what was missing that we're now trying to add in. I mean, I think bridging Gowanus was critical, honestly. So, you know, obviously Councilmember Lander and all the local elected officials that, that helped spearhead that process. I mean, we those recommendations, that process, I, I'm trying to recall, I want to say it started in late 2012 and it concluded in 2014. So, uh, you know, I think it's important to understand the timing. And so, you know, for instance, like the crisis at NYCHA right now wasn't top of mind at the time that Bridging Gowanus was talked about, for instance. The, um, I think, you know, the, how, how the EPA's um, order around the cleanup of the Gowanus Canal and in particular um, the sighting of an 8 million gallon CSO tank and the impact of that and the potential for that to expand green space in Gowanus wasn't understood. So, I th you know, things evolve, basically. So I don't, I don't, so it's, it's, it is true that, um, you know, industrial businesses and public housing residents weren't as uh, active in bridging Gowanus as those voices are, for instance, in uh, the Gowanus Neighborhood Coalition for Justice. But I also think that some of the things we're focused on now are really just an evolution based on the moment in time. And I guess we'll just um, wrap up here. Uh, you mentioned one of the four applications has to do with the NYCHA quote-unquote infill. Yeah. Um, for the this specific project and the larger concept um, of infill in general. Yeah, <laughs> what's your what's your take on that? And um, you know, if if you're not uh, on board with the current structure, what do you you know what would you prefer it to look like? Um, I mean, I think you know, NYCHA's capital needs gap, which the Wall Street Journal this weekend reported at 25 billion rather than 17 billion. Um, you know, is going to require that the agency leverage its assets to try to address the significant repair needs that exist. So infill is certainly a part of the solution. Um, I know that, you know, residents at Wyckoff Gardens um, have some concerns about the process overall and, in fact, was sorry that the team that we were part of that applied to be the developer of the two parking lots at Wyckoff Gardens wasn't selected. Um, but, you know, I know that, that Two Trees and Arker Companies are, are good organizations that have significant affordable housing experience. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think we'll, we'll see how the process evolves. Um, I think the residents have some concerns that need to be addressed. Well, Michelle Delauz of the City Planning Commission and Fifth Avenue Committee, thanks so much for having us out to Gowanus. Thanks for coming.